welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha. And Courtney, I recently started a show you suggested to me a long time ago. Yeah, what show is that? What do you think it is? Um, one that I suggested a long time ago? Mm-hmm. Only Murders in the Building? Nope. Oh. Criminal Minds. You finally started Criminal Minds? I did, like two nights ago. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know why I haven't watched it before, but yeah, so it's going to be, me and Chris are going to try to watch it together. We have a few shows we watch together, but not very many. All right. Well, you've got like 16 seasons to binge. Do so. they still make it? They just started a remake sort of season, but it's only on like our online platform for CBS. I've finished only Murders in the Building I started that a long time ago. I just took a like eight month pause. Got it. Yeah. So well, I'm very proud maybe of it was you. More like a year pause. <laughs> yeah. So, um, welcome to Addicted to Murder. Yes, we're back. And Courtney really highly um, recommends Criminal Minds for anyone who has interest in the FBI behavioral unit. Right. It is 100% not realistic. I understand that. But right. it's interesting. He, the dude says he has an IQ of 186. Yes. Dr. Spencer Reed is everybody's favorite. <laughs> That's what I was told when we were uh-huh. watching this with our <laughs> friends. So anyways. Um, well, yeah. Part two, Anthony so well. But before we get to that, it is question time. It is. And I figured we would go in a lighthearted direction today. So my question for you is... What is your dance like no one's watching song? So it just comes on and you just you just got to dance to it. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, Good Vibrations. Ooh, it's a good one. I try to like learn the dance of the guys under or girls whoever they are under the bridge, but it's way beyond my comprehension. Okay. What about you? I have to say I think mine is don't stop believing by journey. That is, I, I'm curious to see how you dance to that because it's not like a fast song. It's Do not you a sway? slow song either. There's a lot of like, yeah, just like natural movement it's to a lot that. Of, yeah, like as opposed fluid. to like choreography. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm busting a move. You are. And you're being fluid. Yes. Ah, I see. I feel like that maybe describes us. <laughs> Sometimes. I probably hurt myself in the dance, whereas yours is probably therapeutic in some way. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well, I do enjoy that song. That's a good song. Yes. So, well, good question. That made me think. Um, so, yeah, we're back um, on Anthony Sowell, part two. And, Courtney, do you want to give a quick recap? Yes. So, in part one, we learned um, that Anthony Sowell had a terrible childhood that was filled with physical and sexual abuse and an absent father and a ton of chaos all throughout his growing up. Um, So he got into some trouble with the law, joined the military where he did very well, and then had a hard time readjusting to regular life after that, it seems. Got into drinking a lot, um, got into some more trouble with the law, for, you know, some simple assaults and drunken disorderlies and that kind of thing. And then we just left off where he had been convicted or at least pled guilty to um, 
the terrible rape and assault of a woman named Melvette Mm -hmm. and had been sentenced to a nice long prison sentence. Fifteen years. Fifteen years. Hey, Courtney, do you think that the reason he did so well in the armed forces because was because of how chaotic his household was growing up? Maybe he liked that regimented, you know, structure? Yes, absolutely. I wonder if that's sort of like, if we were to actually pick apart the serial killers that we've studied that went to the military, because there are a lot of them dead. You know, some of them did great. Some of them did horrible. I wonder if the ones that did great tended to have that more chaotic childhood and the ones that did horrible maybe had like, you know, only one or two siblings. Maybe. Yeah. This could be something to think about. It is absolutely something that we look at that often people who come from chaos do well with structure. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So like Courtney said, um, you know, Anthony did get the 15 years for attempted rape in prison and he actually serves out his entire sentence, which we don't see very often. His victim, Melvette Stockwell, did not really know what had happened with the case. Um, court documents claim that anytime he came up for parole, she would, you know, advocate against it. But Melvette says she never heard about any parole hearings. So if she's being truthful, then that means the state reports are wrong. Someone lied about Melvette's involvement. You know, and it's stuff like this that makes me really wonder and worry about what happens in the quote system. Regardless of how how or who advocated to keep him in prison, he stayed there. Melvette is quoted as saying, quote, I knew that if he ever got out, he would do it again. And they just didn't seem to care what I thought. They took my statement. They had me ID him. And that was it. I knew he went to prison. I just went back to the streets. That was the end for me. I'm not over it. And I don't know that she ever will be. I don't think anyone does get over something like that. It's more you you learn to live with what happened. Mm Yeah. Process it if you can get into a good therapy program. Right. According to the author of the book that we're using, and again, um, it's called Nobody's Women by Steve Miller, um, Anthony could not grasp how terrible his crime was that got him those 15 years. He didn't have issues with other inmates, and he did well in prison. He liked institutionalization. You know, I suppose it makes sense since he also excelled in the military. One of his files regarding early release said this, quote, continue to maximum expiration of sentence and, quote, lack of significant programming. So basically, he was not learning how to change his behavior. He was not being successfully rehabilitated in prison. His lack of this, his obvious lack of all the emotions and behavior modifications he needed to present is what kept him in prison for his entire sentence. By that, I mean, you know, um, someone like Ed Kemper figured out what they needed to say to get out. And Anthony Sowell was not understanding that. Right. It's going over his head. One inmate said this, quote, he wasn't that bad of a guy. It wasn't like he presented any kind of threat to anybody. So well stood out because of the way he wanted you to pronounce his name. He wanted it pronounced so well. If a male got his name wrong, he would just politely correct him. If a woman got his got it wrong, he would get very upset. End quote. One other telling thing of, you know, stuff to come from prison was a questionnaire he filled out prior to leap prior to release one of the questions was you know so it was like this questionnaire where you fill out uh, there's like a two-word thing and you put like the first thing you think of one of them was most women and he replied just tell lies did I explain that right yeah kind of like a complete the sentence yeah okay that's okay that was an easier way to say it um so Courtney we're seeing a pattern that we've seen before 
dislike of females. He really only got upset with the female guards, and he sees most women as liars. Do you think this distrust came from the abuse he suffered from his mom as a child? You know, she not only physically abused him, but she did not protect him from the other abusers in the household. Yes, I would agree that his distrust and anger towards women likely originates from his mother and the abuse that he suffered under her roof. You know, the relationship a child has with his mother is the basis for how they will approach and understand future relationships with women in general. You know, and additionally, you know, it's possible that he's either in denial or trying to cover up his history of sexually abusing his niece and other violent crimes against women by claiming that, you know, all women lie. So if you can just say all women are liars, then anything they say about him Mm -hmm. must be a lie. That makes sense. On June 20th, 2005, he was released from prison, and he's now in his 40s. His half-sister, Tressa, and her many children went to pick him up. Anthony moved in with uh, with his family, and there were 13 people living in a small house, but Anthony did get his own room. I assumed he was viewed as the patriarch, and that was why he didn't have to share a room. He didn't stay there that long. You know, I just imagine it was too much with all the children, but he ended up moving back in with his stepmom, Sigurna, on Imperial Avenue. Sowell had to register as a sex offender. He was embarrassed by this, thought it would hurt his chances of getting a job. Apparently, there were 12 other registered sex offenders within five miles. So you just never know who your neighbors are, right, Courtney? That is true. You never know. Anyhow, he did get a job as a a prep cook at the baseball field of the Cleveland Indians. Anthony loved sports, especially the Cleveland teams, so this seemed like a great fit. Sowell had to do some evaluations as part of his release with a psychiatrist, and he lied about most of what he said, indicating he had a good childhood, didn't suffer abuse, suffer abuse, learned about sex from his friends, and not by being molested and raping his cousins or nieces. Um, he claimed that he paid Melbet for sex that night and didn't really remember what happened with her as he was drunk. Now, the shrunk, the shrink bought it hook, line, and sinker. He was giving a low probability rating on reoffending and categorized as a, quote, sexually oriented offender and not a, quote, sexual predator. Had he been given the ranking of sexual predator, he would have been on a list of people in the area to check out when a sexual offense was reported. Courtney, do you have anything to say? I know you have said that you can only work with what a client gives you, but Anthony met with this guy one time for 90 minutes. After everything happened later on, the state would not even name who wrote this report, and you know they were in hot water for failing on this front. Yeah, well, it's true that as clinicians, you know, we have to trust what a client tells us to a certain degree. We are also able to utilize collateral information, like previous assessments, reports from people who know them, um, reports from outside agencies like police or the prison. Uh, You know, so while Anthony may have been lying about everything during his session with this one psychiatrist, the psychiatrist also likely had access to or could have requested, say, the police report with details of the crime, as well as reports from the prison, um, that kind of thing. And I mean, when completing any sort of risk assessment like this, it would just be irresponsible to rely solely on the report of the offender who has everything to gain by not telling the whole truth. Anthony met Lori Frazier in 2005. Lori was a prior offender, several drug charges, car theft, solicitation, drug trafficking, and she escaped from custody one time. She was 37 at the time with four children. 
She had also been hospitalized for mental illness, including possible schizophrenia, as she heard voices telling her to hurt herself or others or to run away. She was a mess at the time Anthony met her. Um, She would do sex work in order to support her crack habit. Their meeting went like this. Lori was walking down the street with a recently purchased beer. Anthony saw her and said, quote, I can get you something better than beer. To which Lori responded, what's your name? You like to party? That was it. They were attracted to each other, and she went with him to a local bar to get better acquainted. After a few drinks, they went to Anthony's house. She stayed the night, then left in the morning. Then she kept coming back, night after night. Eventually, she moved in, and they were now a couple. Lori was still very much a crack addict, and at this time, Anthony was, you know, he was not a crack addict. Excuse me. He was not a crack addict, but he tolerated her habit. So this is going to sound random, but will come into play later. Next door to Anthony Sowell's residence was a neighborhood mainstay. Ray's Sausages was a shop that made sausages, as the name would imply. The neighborhood smelled like warm sausages. It sounds like it was a pleasant smell. Well, in 2006, Lori, still dating Anthony, started to think that the house smelled pretty bad. Like the sausages next door had gone bad and it was wafting into that house. There was a family renting out the second floor of Anthony's house who also noticed the smell. They started seeing lots of mice. They called an exterminator, but it just didn't eradicate the problem. Quote, there became a smell that I didn't recognize. Maybe rotten food, if you will. It would become stronger as you moved into the apartment. We speculated that a dead animal had crawled in there and died. It smelled like rotting fruit. So others in the neighborhood noticed the smell and complained to the city, which in turn required Ray Sausages to pay to have the street tore up to see if anything was wrong with the pipes and also required them to put in new grease traps. The cost um, of all this was $30,000 to Ray's business. They were inspected and they always passed. The pipes were now for sure clean, the grease traps were replaced, and the smell did not improve. Anthony held out as long as he could, but eventually Lori's crack habit became his own. He stopped paying rent to his stepmother, who tried to force him to leave, uh, but she was in ailing health, and he refused to go. Uh, The Pompeys on the second floor decided to move out when Lakeisha Pompey came outside to find a piece of fabric tied around the mirror of her car. I guess that this fabric was the signal that it was a crack house, a place to buy and partake in drugs. Lori was still having legal problems, getting arrested for this and that, and Anthony was bailing her out sometimes, but his habit was getting pretty bad. He became extremely rageful while doing crack, scary even. Quote, sometimes he would get so mad, so into his rage, he would scream and holler in my face. He smacked me and I fell on the table, and I tried to kick him. One time he told me he was going to throw me out the window. Um, Courtney, I'm going to ramble on for a bit. Do you want to say anything before I do? Um, I'd say I think we can see as time goes on the development of that that rage that we often see building in serial killers mm-hmm. before they kind of start their their killing spree. So some, that's something to pay attention to. In February of 2007, Anthony was not feeling well. He thought he had the flu, but he couldn't get to the VA for an assessment because he lost his driver's license. After days of haggling with the VA and waiting for a replacement ID, he finally got on the bus to go to the VA hospital. He fell out of the bus and laid on the sidewalk. He was wheeled into the ER where he was evaluated and was found to have suffered a heart attack. Three of his arteries were all or mostly blocked. The VA could not treat the severity of his illness, so he was transferred to the Cleveland Clinic. They performed surgery to unclog two of the arteries, but he had suffered the heart attack a week before, so his heart was permanently damaged. He was dying at this point. 
No one thought he would recover. He was given a pacemaker, and it saved his life. He was released a few days later, and he was told to do rehab to help his heart muscle grow stronger. But he didn't have money for the rehab, and the VA would not pay for the rehab. The VA covered the almost $200,000 surgery, but not the aftercare. The healthcare system in this co- in this country is so frustrating. How can anyone pay out of pocket for rehab therapy? I mean, unless you make a shit ton of money. Suffice to say, he didn't do it. He went back to work, now at Custom Rubber, and they had to call an ambulance one day because he struggled to breathe. And he pretty much left his job after this. Courtney, this is the first time Anthony has been without a job since he was basically old enough to work. What can happen to a person when, you know, they have to rely on the government assistance because they are physically unable to work? I, I imagine it would be really depressing. Yeah, it can be a very difficult transition, you know, out of the workforce for many people. When a person is used to being independent and using their time in a way that makes them feel productive and valuable, losing all of that can be devastating. You know, what might start as boredom can easily turn into anger and depression, as you mentioned. You know, and also relying on assistance from the government can be humiliating for someone who's used to being self-sufficient. And combining all of these emotions with, you know, having no no goals, no hope, you know, for things to work towards, it can just be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I mean, if his heart is that badly damaged, he's, he's not going to improve. Right. So that lack of hope, yeah, what right. have I got to lose type of mentality might start to happen. Right, or, a, you know, what am I supposed to be doing with my life now mm-hmm. that I can't work? Starting in May of 2007, women started to go missing from the East Cleveland area. The first was named Crystal Dozier. She was last seen May 13th. Crystal was a drug addict with a tough past. She had her first child when she was 13 by a 17-year-old boy. Then she got pregnant again at 14 by a 20-year-old. She would go on to have seven children by the time she disappeared at 38 years of age. She was a high school dropout and married a man named Anthony Troop, but by 1987, the pair were deemed unfit parents and the children started to be moved out of the home into the foster system. She had several arrests and even used one of her daughter's names as her own, which would prove to be extremely difficult to sort out in the future for her daughter. Her four youngest children were adopted by one family and one of her sons was adopted by his foster mother. Unfortunately, he would die of asthma-related illness at age 11. Courtney, can you offer us some reasons as to why children so young become parents? I mean, there are birth control options out there, yet we see so many children having children. It doesn't seem to deter them. The short answer is poverty. You know, Crystal would have been 13 in 1982 when the options for birth control were more limited and not as easily accessible. And then add in the impacts of poverty, including less access to educational information, fewer providers and clinics in the neighborhood, and no money to pay for birth control itself. You know, where we work, we are able to see the impact of accessible health care and free birth control on reducing teen pregnancy. But not everywhere is so lucky, and especially back then in that neighborhood. And, you know, in this... Um, case. I'm going to go over the victims a little more um, than I normally do. And, you know, a lot of them, all of them have a checkered past. However, they were still people. And, um, you know, it didn't seem like a whole lot was done to find them. So I'm going to just give them a little bit more. I don't know. Make I'm going to try to humanize them. So even though a lot of these women 
struggled with addiction and stuff like that. And they seem to be a product of their environment. And I don't know what can be done to stop that. And it's something I've always like, this is kind of just coming at you from left field, Courtney, but do you have any ideas on how to stop this type of cycle that we see that we will see in this case from happening over and over again? Can you fix the world? I wish. I wish I had that magic wand and I could just wave it and and fix the world. Um, But I think that some things that we're seeing kind of in the more current atmosphere are trying to address these things. So things like racial and wealth inequality are being talked about a lot more. Um, Access to quality, you know, mental health care Mm -hmm. and addiction services are being talked about a lot more. Um, And so I think... Step one, of course, is to bring awareness to it. And I feel like that's maybe where we've gotten so far, at Mm -hmm. least from my very white, middle class, heterosexual, you know, Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, But I think addressing those things really, so mental health, equity, you know, addiction services, um, believing women when Mm -hmm. they say that things happen to them. And men too, but believing victims, essentially, right? Really addressing those things are what will break the cycle. Well, I hope that um, it improves. Me too. Crystal's son, Anthony Jr., was the one to report his mother's disappearance. There was a little bit of investigating done, checking out her last known address, etc. But despite a promise that they would send him a police report within three days, nothing was ever sent. Uh, most likely because of who she was and, you know, what she represented. Um, So Crystal's case was forgotten before it really even had a chance to breathe. The family would go on to launch their own investigation since they saw the police would be no help. In June 2007, a month after Crystal disappeared, the temperatures began to rise and with it the stink of the sausage factory. Quote, we received a phone call from a resident that said a foul odor came across the street and it smells like a dead person. Not dead meat, not a dead animal, a dead person. The health department went out to investigate the sausage factory, and this was actually when the grease traps were replaced, but the smell just didn't go away. I think you can see where I'm going with this. Uh, One day in 2008, Lori came home to Anthony's house to find blood everywhere, on the walls, the bed, the floor. Anthony told her someone tried to rob him. Another time she came by that year, Anthony's neck was scratched to shit, deep scratches. His excuse this time was that he was attacked while scrapping metal in a vacant house. So he was now scrapping metal, like going to vacant houses and and finding, you know, rare metals like, you know, what is it, copper Mm -hmm. um, to earn money. Another time she saw him after he just got stitches in his neck after what he said was another attack in a nearby neighborhood. Lori was still in trouble with the law, but she finally decided to leave him for good by August of 2008. And thank goodness, you know, that she did. Sigurna, his stepmom, also left for good at that time. You know, she finally got the much-needed kidney transplant, and she moved away. So Anthony now had this big old house to himself. And this was a big house. I didn't really get into it, but it was three stories, um, several rooms, um, had been in his family for a few generations now. So... Um, anyhow, Courtney, do you want to talk a little bit about how hard it can be for a person in Lori's position? You know, she's a drug addict. She's finally financially dependent on Anthony and she finally decided to leave. Can you give us a little insight on the drug addict's mind? You know, how they can do almost anything, if not anything to get a fix. 
Yeah. So as you know, our brains function, their main function is to keep us alive. Um, and it's why we crave food when we're hungry and breathe automatically. You know, all the focus of the brain is on meeting our basic needs until they're met. And once they're met, then we can start thinking and worrying about other things like the clothes we want to wear and, you know, our relationships and, you know, goals and things like that. Now, when a person becomes addicted to a substance, the brain or the substance essentially tricks the brain into thinking that getting that substance is now a basic need that is required for survival. So a starving person will do almost anything to get food, and an addict will do anything to get their drug. It's sort of the same mechanism. Um, And for Lori, you know, being with Anthony meant that she didn't need to worry about some of those basic needs like shelter or food, so she could focus just on getting her drugs. So it would be very difficult to kind of give up that even little tiny amount of a sense of security that she had with him. LaShonda Long went missing in May of 2008. LaShonda grew up with her five siblings in the care of her grandmother, who begged for help to find them homes. She could not handle all of them. Eventually, they moved in with an aunt, who also had two children of her own. LaShonda would leave her aunt's house to go live with her father, Jim, but she would run away from his home, too. She had her first child at age 13. She would have two more by the time she was 17 years old. She was deemed unfit, and her children were placed with relatives. She was in rehab for six months for drug treatment. Psychiatric facilities and juvenile hall were places she went to. As an adult, she continued to get herself in trouble with the law, and she was still using drugs. Her, first, or her father was the last person to see her alive that May afternoon. Tashana Culver was born in 1978 and had a dad that was more in jail than out. She started fighting others at school in junior high and had the first of her six children when she was a sophomore, so probably about 15 years old. She didn't get get engaged once, but he killed himself on the Lake Erie waterfront in 1998. After his death, she really went downhill. She had a record full of prostitution charges, weapon charges, and drug charges. When she needed a drug fix, she would do sex work, to which her boyfriend Carl did not approve. Quote, Whenever she put on that red lipstick, I knew what it meant. Unless I tied her down, there was no way I could stop her. I hated to watch the person I love hop in and out of cars. In 2006, she was arrested for domestic violence when one night when Carl tried to stop her from going out to sell herself for drugs, she punched and tried to stab him. This sent her to prison. When she got out on work release in May, she was not welcome at her mother's home. She was last seen May 21, 2008. Michelle Mason went missing in October 2008. She was discovered missing when she failed to cash in her unemployment checks. Michelle had, of course, a hard life. She had a glass eye from being shot and left for dead and HIV from sharing needles. She had a long rap sheet with most of her charges being related to drugs, but also for soliciting after a positive HIV test. I wasn't aware that there was a different charge um, for knowing you had HIV and soliciting than just soliciting. But I suppose with the right attorney, that could be considered attempted murder. Um, as back then, there weren't great treatments. Have you ever heard of, did you know that there was two different charges? Um, I hadn't heard of it when it comes to solicitation, but I have heard of um, people like knowingly, like not divulging to their partners that they are HIV positive and mm-hmm. that being a crime. Hmm. She was also diagnosed, diagnosed with bipolar depression. When she went missing, she weighed 85 pounds. Mm. There was a convenience-type uh, store near Anthony's house, and the, provider, the proprietors of the place knew Anthony well. 
They started to notice that whenever he came in, he smelled awful. Very similar to the rancid smell the, the rancid smell the sausage factory was accused of putting off. In fact, one of the workers said this, quote, he gave me a headache from the smell. It was that overpowering. His purchases started to change as well. He used to just buy 40-ounce bottles of beer and cigarettes and several lighters at the time. I've also learned from this book that crack users go through a lot of lighters where they buy like eight or nine at a time. But now he was also buying electrical extension cords and thick plastic garbage bags. So, um, I think we can see where this is going. <laughs> right. I know you mentioned in, in episode one, right, that the extension cords mm. that his Anthony's mother would use to beat them would come back into play at a later point. And here we are. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stop with that today. I'm going to uh, next. The next one should be the, the last one. We're going to finish up with victims, but he does have some survivors um, like Melvette. So, you know, it's awesome to hear their stories. I really recommend um, if you're interested in this case at all to watch that snapped episode because it has all the survivors telling their stories and they actually um, do like a Zoom meeting with each other and like make this little support group with each other kind of thing oh that's interesting yeah um it's pretty crazy because you know I I I would think that it would be really hard to um have that discussion with someone like what happened to you but it might be a lot easier and more comforting to these five women experience not the exact same thing but with the exact with the same perpetrator right see how that could be healing it can definitely be be healing to know that you're not alone yeah Totally. So um, with that, unless, Courtney, do you want to, I mean, I kind of abruptly ended this one. Do you have anything you want to add on that I didn't ask you about that you're making? Um, do you want to talk diagnosis at this point? Do you have any different, last week you said you weren't sure he had a APSD, ASPD, um, antisocial personality disorder. Do you still feel that way or do you think that something's changing? You or- know, I'll be honest, he kind of is feels a little bit of a mystery to me um and I know and maybe it's because I haven't had a chance to to read the book unfortunately so I'm going off of more um knowledge that's available kind of like on the internet and and things like that um but I just don't have a good read on whether that you know antisocial personality disorder is what's happening here you know and I wonder how I guess the the biggest confounding thing for me is the addiction, mm-hmm. um, and I s- do seriously wonder um, if these murders would have happened had he not been an addict, if right. he had been sober. Because it seems like when he was sober, at least when he was younger, like he wasn't you know perfect. He wasn't an angel by any means, but he seemed to have you know some direction and some. Yeah. You know, ability to have relationships. Well, um, the book doesn't really go into um, what you're talking about as far as Anthony. So it's still kind of a mystery. There's not like a whole bunch of in-depth interview or anything like that with him. Mm -hmm. Um, He does get a tax return um, for like $3,000 at some point during this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And he uses that money to lure women to his house with crack. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if that, you know, but that was just one thing that was mentioned in um, either the book or one of the documentaries I watched. So he had something that the women wanted and he knew he wanted it, that they wanted it. So, you know, that was one of the way he got the women to come to him. Okay. Yeah. So, so there is some manipulation going. Mm-hmm. There's definitely some pre-planning involved in, in these yeah. things, um, which speaks more to, you know, there being some some psychopathy going on in his mind. Um, but if he's telling the truth where he doesn't remember what happened with Milvet, eh. I mean, I don't believe that eh. for a minute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think he remembers. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, my, my compassion meter is mm-hmm. up for him, I think, because of, of the things that he went through when he right. was younger. And so the, the part of me that wants to believe that people can be rehabilitated Mm -hmm. I think wants him to be okay if he just right you know didn't pick up alcohol and crack but realistically probably you know he probably is a psychopath this whole um case is really 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 sad because we are being subjected to a whole level of poverty that we've not seen before. I mean, maybe Willie Picton a little bit, but not even Willie Picton because, you know, he was his his parents were just neglectful and that's why he was so dirty. They had money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't I can't think of another case where the person that we were looking for came from an environment anywhere near this. Am I wrong? Can you think of mm-hmm. one? But again, we've only really done white serial killers. I mean, right. if you want to think about mm-hmm. maybe the um, Richard Ramirez might be one of mm-hmm. the closest or uh, Juanita Braza. Right. Like, I mean, hers definitely. And they weren't white. No. Um, I mean, Harvey Kerrigan in his early life That's before true. he went yeah. to the like the boys home. And it's... Harvey Kerrigan pulls on the heart, heartstrings. He does. Hey, speaking of Harvey Kerrigan, why don't you tell our listeners... Um, a little bit about what uh, one of our Facebook followers told you, if you want. Yes. So, um, Trisha is right. We got a lovely fan who reached out to us through our Facebook account, um, whose brother had actually been in prison with good old Harvey Kerrigan, Harvey the Hammer. Um, and so she shared that her brother, when he got into prison, he was young and naive and had never been in, you know, big boy prison before. And um, he kind of was befriended by a, a group of, you know, African-American men. This kiddo was white um, who, you know, bought him things with the promise that, oh, you can just pay us back later when you get the money. Um, and really, you know, kind of setting this, this kid up to be taken advantage of. Um, and apparently um, Harvey was right in the cell next to um, – this fan's brother, and basically let him know that um, they have no intention of letting him pay back what he owes, and he's basically just going to kind of be their bitch Mm -hmm. um, while in prison. And so Harvey, um, you know, befriended her brother and kind of protected him, and when the guys came back to collect, you know, their debt— um, Harvey was the one who pushed the alert button and, you know, alerted the guards that something was going on and essentially saved her brother's life. So, um, 
what she was wanting to do and connect by sharing this with with us was with us, excuse me, um, was that she felt like this was another example of how Harvey was maybe not a true psychopath in that he had other emotions and had empathy um, at times for others. Right, because if he was um, without emotion, he wouldn't have cared what happened to this guy. Right. I mean, he might even think it was funny or got off on it. I don't know, but he helped (laughs) this person survive prison. So, um, anyhow, it's really interesting when we get um, stuff like that. So, if you guys have any stories that you want to tell about anyone we've covered or people we haven't covered, let us know. Yes, we love those. Yeah, that was really cool. So thank you for that story. Um, And that will bring us to our social media. Which is yours today. Which is mine. So please, um, if you have anything you want to email us about, uh, it's addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Instagram at addictedtompodcast. Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Um, the two we're on the most is Facebook and Instagram, but you know we get around to checking all of them. So just um, listen, like, follow, subscribe. If you have any questions, great. Um, comments are welcome. You know we are sensitive, but we can handle it. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, I guess that's it for today. Yeah. We're good. All right. So um, everyone be safe and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.